All right, well, it's been a while since we've uh, gone over our history, church history series. I think the last lecture I gave was uh, last summer. Um, I think I uploaded it several months later, but uh, we, were at the, uh, we were at the Middle Ages, and uh, we basically went through essentially 500 to about 1,000 or so uh, A.D., but um, can anybody tell me maybe some of the things leading up to that that we had gone over, um, either in basically divided it into uh, the age of Catholic Christianity, I think we did two lectures there, and then the age of the Christian Roman Empire, and then we did one on the, the early Middle Ages. Catholic Christianity, what, what was anything that we talked about there? Uh, that was, uh, yeah, that was um, the Christian Roman Empire. So monasteries and, and all of that really, I, I'm, if, I, if I remember correctly, um, Christianity gets established by, it, it becomes uh, um, a permissible religion after Constantine and Constantine and the Edict of Milan. And uh, um, you have the bishops who were previously persecuted um, brought in um, under Emperor Constantine about 300 years later, 313 or so. And, um, and then after, after uh, 100 years or 200 years or so, somewhere around there, the church starts to become, the bishops start to become a little bit more corrupt. And so the monk movement was to push yourself away from the world, to leave the world and go live in contemplation and prayer and uh, in the desert somewhere on top of a giant stump or something like that. And this, the main monk would be Anthony. Uh, Anthony uh, was uh, kind of one of the, f- the first ones to kind of do that. Um, but in the age of Catholic Christianity, uh, the, su- the successors to the apostles, you could say, were the bishops. That was a big thing. And the bishops were the lead pastors of these various cities, uh, Ignatius and... Uh, Polycarp and uh, Irenaeus and a lot of these guys became martyrs. Martyrdom was a big thing in that period, uh, particularly the Diocletian persecution, which happened at the end of the uh, third century, uh, the end of the 200s. Um, that was the most severe persecution, and that came right before what happened? I just said it a while ago. Constantine. It, it, the Edict of Milan, Christianity becomes permissible, yeah. and, it, and it starts to take over the entire empire, which is another, I think, an, another end of the age that happened there. There was an age there, and right before there, there was a uh, there was a great persecution there, and then and then you had the uh, the uh, coming of the king, in a sense, with Constantine. Um, so, uh, so the bishops, martyrdom, um, and then there were two questions that, that, that the church was really wrestling with at the time prior to Constantine. Anybody remember? I mean, these, que- these are the two questions that are in the New Testament quite a bit. The deity of Christ? That would be, the deity of Christ would be in the Christian Roman Empire. That would be after, but I'm trying, prior to... 
would be the Jewish question and the Gentile question as far as, okay, what does it mean to be a Jew and what does it mean to have these Gentiles come in and working out those issues. Uh, I mean, the, the New Testament is pretty clear that the sacrifices are fulfilled in Christ and uh, the Gentiles don't have to submit to the dietary restrictions and a lot of things that the, that the uh, Jewish law um, uh, had for them. And then you have uh, uh, the Gentile question, how much of natural revelation or how much of uh, the Gentile understanding of philosophy and things like this can we bring into Christianity? And uh, a lot of it was just straight up heretical, like the Gnostic sects and competing mythologies and stuff like that. Constantine comes along. We have the establishment of, of the Christian Roman Empire. And then, yes, I, I would characterize that period as establishing the deity of Christ. And there are several councils. Uh, the names, the, the, our church's namesake with Athanasius, uh, he really fought tenaciously to defend the full deity of Christ against Arians, who view Jesus as essentially the highest creature that's ever been created. But the Catholic position, the Orthodox position um, that the Bible teaches is that Jesus has been, uh, Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you come into the, the Middle Ages, the Christian Roman Empire begins to kind of uh, uh, become uh, more corrupt and kind of start, it starts falling, it starts uh, be, being overrun by pagans. You have Augustine writing The City of God basically saying our hopes are not set on the city of man, but on the city of God, which is eternal, the eternal city. And even though Rome is falling, um, it's, uh, we have an eternal city, which we've set our hopes on and, and these kinds of things. Um, and then, uh, yeah, we had we talked a little bit about Pope Gregory, who Calvin said was the last good pope, and uh, kind of this pious, monkish man who became a pope really helped to... Uh, he sent missionaries out throughout Europe, really helped to convert pagan Europe into Christianity. Um, and we talked a little bit about some of the kind of Roman Catholic accretions at the time. Uh, the mass, purgatory, things like that were, were starting to become more prominent. Uh, and then we ended on the investiture controversy, which essentially was uh, the Pope was gaining more power and it was often at odds with the emperors of the time. Um, Oh, and we talked about Charlemagne too. Uh, Charlemagne being coronated as emperor and, uh, and this being a kind of revival of Europe after it had been uh, kind of in a funk for a while, kind of this make Europe great again moment. And uh, Charlemagne is coronated, I think, 800, 800 uh, AD on Christmas. And, um, and that was a real time of uh, kind of well, I don't know if you call it prosperity, but it was somewhat of a renaissance of education and uh, unity within Europe. But you have this tension between the popes and the, and the emperors, which we're going to see basically all throughout the Middle Ages. And one of the things that we talked about last time was the investiture controversy, which essentially was who is able to put into place clergy, who ordains clergy, who, who appoints them, and the papacy would say that, well, the, the uh, uh, keys of the kingdom have been given to Peter and to the apostles. And in the, in the Bible, the apostles selected men, and those men selected other men to be elders all the way down to the present. And so 
the church, the elders, which at that time, the successor of the apostles would be the bishops, they select men to be uh, clergy. And what was happening in the investiture controversy is that emperors who are just laymen, they were appointing people to be clergy. Um, if the clergy would pay them a certain amount of money or things like this, they would put them uh, uh, into these positions. And these clergymen would be more favorable to the civil magistrates as opposed to the papacy. And that caused a lot of, that caused the, the papacy and Rome to kind of exercise more power, excommunicate uh, certain countries or, or emperors. And so basically in the Middle Ages, you're going to see this increase, this increase between um, the powers of the Pope at odds with the powers of the emperors and the kings at the time. So that's a little bit of a review. And so And so now we are at um, we're at this second part of the the Middle Ages, and uh, the first thing I want to talk about is the Great Schism of 1054. And uh, essentially, what this is is you have sometimes what is called the First Millennium Consensus that the Church was generally unified for the first thousand years. I mean, there were the Coptics in Egypt who kind of started doing their own thing, and there was a few other kind of breakaways. But for the most part, the church was unified, east and west. But as time went on, and um, uh, you basically start to have this drifting apart between uh, the eastern churches and the western churches, the eastern empire and the western empire. And some of the things that contribute to this are, um, uh, I mean, well, you have... Emperor Constantine moving the, the, the center of the empire from Rome. He moves it to Constantinople, uh, which is modern-day Istanbul. Um, and, um, and then uh, after, I guess that'd be about, um, I guess from 300 and then to 800, you have the coronation of Charlemagne, who is another emperor in the West. Um, and so that's kind of a little bit of a why is there two emperors? But, but the Eastern emperor allowed it. So that's a little bit of even going further apart. You have language barriers in the East. They're continuing to speak in Greek. And in the West, they're, they're speaking in Latin. So you have a language barrier there. Um, and then, and you have different practices even in the church. Like uh, in the East, they began, uh, they, they used leavened bread like what we use. And in the West, even to this day, uh, the Roman Catholic Church will use uh, unleavened bread. You see, it kind of looks like a wafer. Um, often you'll see, you know, hold up the, the bread like this or under the cup. Um, it's unleavened bread, and which is what they, which the Eucharist, being a New Covenant version of the Passover, would have uh, used unleavened bread. And so a couple of things that caused this split um, the main thing that's attributed to it is you, you, you have all of these kind of drifting apart uh, contributions, but one of the main things that's brought up is the filioque uh, clause in uh, the Nicene Creed. And so when uh, the church got together um, and came up with the, the Nicene Creed, uh, they, 
the original creed says that uh, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, and that was it. And when we say it, we say what? The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, right? And that was an addition that the West had added, and filioque is just Latin for and the Son. That's, that's all that word means. And they added that, and the main reason why they added it was um, to push back against the Arians, because if you just if you excluded the son from that statement, it could possibly be interpreted and used by Arians to diminish the deity of Christ. And so the church added that in there to essentially kind of solidify the deity of Christ. And there's a lot of uh, argumentation about the, the theological correctness or not of it. Uh, I think it is. I think it is a better statement. But the main issue that the East had with this when they discovered that the West was using this in the creed was that the West just added it without an ecumenical council. So they didn't get together and say, we want to amend the creed. They just added it. And so this issue of authority being able to do this was uh, uh, kind of a contentious issue with the East. And... uh, Basically, what happens is um, you have this advisor to the Pope, and he, he intercepts a letter from one of the Eastern bishops who's criticizing the West. He brings it to the Pope. Um, the Pope is incensed, and he sends his advisor and his entourage over to, uh, uh, over to the East. Um, this advisor, his name is uh, Humbert of Silva Candida. And um, so he goes uh, to the, I, I, I believe it's the Archbishop of Constantinople, to, uh, his name is Michael Cellularis, and they're sent to kind of smooth things over, but basically you have Humbert and Michael, Michael the Archbishop of Constantinople, Humbert the papal advisor, and uh, they, they arrive, and Michael the, the Bishop of Constantinople makes the delegation and makes Humbert wait. He, he does this, and diplomats will do that sometime to kind of assert their authority. He makes them wait. And uh, once they finally do get a meeting with him, it essentially escalates into a shouting match, and uh, it doesn't really go anywhere. You just have two egomaniacs going at each other's throats for all these various things. And then on Easter Sunday, on, in 1054, uh, while... Uh, Michael is in Hagia Sophia. He's performing the vigil for the Easter service. Humbert walks in and he slaps a bull of excommunication down on the altar and says, you guys are excommunicated. And Michael does the same thing to uh, Humbert and his entourage in the West. And you have this mutual excommunication of the, of the Western churches and the Eastern churches. And, uh, it's, it was just a kind of, it could have just been a blip in church history of two egomaniacs going at each other, um, but that mutual excommunication has been in effect till this day. And uh, there's still the East and the West. The Eastern churches went one way and the Western churches went another. And um, another big thing uh, that really caused it, and I think there's, I think the Eastern churches have been more correct than the West, is that in the East you had these patriarchs, these primates of various cities and nations, um, these lead pastors of Antioch, Jerusalem, Damascus, um, 
and then you had and then you had another bishop in Rome in Italy, and and in the East they don't have a head of the church except Christ, and obviously Rome says the same thing. But there's no pope in the in the East. It's just you just have leaders of these countries, lead pastors of these various cities and countries, um, and in the West you have this you have this head of the church and the pope, and he became more powerful and wanted to assert more authority. And that has, all, that has been in his authority over, over these um, kind of more, uh, they're, where they're all equal, they're on, on an equal standing. Um, and that also contributed to the, the schism. So anyway, that's a little bit of what happened. And that still exists to this day, although there is a little bit more. Uh, I've heard that when the Pope gets together with some of the Eastern patriarchs, and they say the creed um, out of deference for the East, the Pope will leave out the filioque clause, kind of a, a olive branch. But they, they say it in Greek, and they leave it out, and nobody really notices, so it's not very scandalous. <laughs> All right. So uh, the Crusades are about 1096 to 1291. And basically, what happens with the Crusades is uh, you have uh, the spread of Islam in the seventh century, um, and uh, within the first hundred years or so of Islam uh, becoming a, a, a dominant force uh, in the East, uh, they take over m- most of the major Christian cities, Jerusalem and Damascus and, and things like this. And then you have the Turks. Uh, which are a, a different kind of people convert to Islam, and they are much more radically violent uh, in their, I guess, um, holy war. And they, they, take, they take Jerusalem from these prior Muslims, and they, take all, and they start working their way into Asia Minor, and they eventually take over Constantinople, which is the, the capital city of the empire in the east. And uh, this is only a few years after the official schism, and the emperor in the east basically asks the west to help him out. Say, hey, these Muslims have taken over and uh, we, we could use some help. And so um, the west answers the call and they're like, We're, okay, we'll send some people to go help you out and to take back Jerusalem from, uh, from these pagans. And uh, I, I simply just want to talk about... Um, uh, we have the for the first crusade. There's several crusades throughout this about uh, 300 year period. Um, I think there's about seven or eight major crusades, but I just want to talk about the first one and then maybe the fourth one a little bit. In the first, the first one you have um, it's a council. Uh, where is it? Yeah, a council of Clermont, which is in France, I believe. Yeah, southeastern France. An urban Pope Urban II gives a speech, and uh, I just want to read. I want to read basically most of the speech here. It's not very long, um, but it gives you an idea of what what was happening here. And th- this council was not just a um, clergy; there was laymen there too, as well. And Pope Urban II, he says this. He uh, well, he basically enumerates a lot of vicious atrocities that these that these Turkish Muslims have uh, committed, uh, ripping babies out of pregnant women, just kind of pretty much the most heinous 
things that you can cutting off the heads of of people, just pretty much the most heinous things that you can think of in, in, in criminal warfare. He says, this is what these guys are doing in the Holy Land and to Christians. And um, then he says this, O bravest of knights, descendants of unconquered ancestors, do not be weaker than they, but remember their courage. If you are kept back by your love for your children, relatives, and wives, remember what the Lord says in the gospel. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And everyone that hath forsaken houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit uh, everlasting life. Let no possessions keep you back, no solicitude for your property. Your land is shut in on all sides by the sea and the mountains and is too, is, is too thickly populated. There is not much wealth here, and the soil scarcely yields enough to support you. On this account, you kill and devour each other and carry on war and mutually destroy each other. Let your hatred and quarrels cease, your civil wars come to an end, and all your dissensions stop. Set out the road to the Holy Sepulcher, which is a church in Jerusalem. Take the land from that wicked people and make it your own. The land which, as the scripture says, is flowing with milk and honey. God gave to the children of Israel. Jerusalem is the best of all lands, more fruitful than all the others, as it were a second paradise of delights. The land our Savior made illustrious by his birth, beautiful with his life, and sacred with his suffering. He redeemed it with his death and glorified it with his tomb. The royal city is now held captive by her enemies and made pagan by those who know not God. She asks and longs to be liberated and does not cease to beg you to. Come to her aid. She asks especially from you because as I have said, God has given you more of the military spirit to you than to other nations. Set out on this journey. And this is the important part. Set out on this journey and you will obtain the remission of your sins and be sure of the incorruptible glory of the kingdom of heaven. And so you see him using these, these spiritual principles and marshalling all of them for go and take back Jerusalem in this militaristic sense, and you'll be forgiven of your sins. And at this point in history, everybody believes in hell. Everybody believes in heaven, at least here in, in Europe. And also that in an increasingly, sen in an increasingly uh, increasing sense, the visible church led by the Pope has the keys to the kingdom. And so he can forgive your sins. And he, he has the power to essentially grant you eternal life. And so after this, everybody began to shout Deus Volt, Deus Volt, which is Latin for God wills it. God wills it. And he responds by saying, the Holy Spirit is on you. And it is only by God that you all unanimously started shouting Deus Volt. He's, he, so he's just constantly using these things to um, uh, answer the call of the East for, for help. And so um, you see this throughout. This, this kind of thing continues. There's several crusades that are sent. Uh, I think the first, crusade, the first crusade was relatively successful, and that was pretty much the only one that was. All the rest were not very, very successful. Um, Yeah, I, I only wanted to mention in, in the Crusades and in, in modern discourse, if you're talking to non-believers and we talk about, say, the violence perpetuated by Muslims, what's the, what's the thing that's always brought up? Yeah, well, what about the Crusades? <laughs> well, there, there is a little bit of truth in that. Um, 
the the Crusades were pretty pretty bloody at points. They were pretty atrocious. But you see um, Christians denouncing the, their own violence when that happens. You see um, Pope Innocent uh, in the Fourth Crusade. Basically, you have these. You just have these crusaders going nuts. They, they, there's a lot of things going on there. They, these Venetians are charging outrageous shipping costs. And they're like, well, if uh, you don't want to pay the shipping costs, then uh, you can go and take this town that we've been wanting to take for a while. And the crusaders are like, okay, we'll go do it. And, um, and so they just kind of become these pillaging, even not just with Muslims, but with Christians and Jews as well. And so... So the criticism of the Crusades is, it is a legitimate criticism, but, but the Christians at the time, even the leaders, were criticizing it as well. Pope Innocent wrote to the Crusaders of the Fourth Crusade, You have spared nothing that is sacred, neither age nor sex. You have given yourselves up to prostitution, to adultery, and to debauchery in the face of all the world. Um, so, you know, he, uh, I think he... Um, yeah, so there were terrible things that happened. And, um, oh, <laughs> and these guys also, um, the, the West actually, they take over Constantinople and they set up a Western, kind of a Western rule for, for a few years, several, several decades, I think, before it actually goes back to the East. So anyway, there, those, are, uh, those are some things, uh, kind of a, a quick overview of uh, some of the Crusades. All right. All right. Uh, what's the next thing on the outline? I'm kind of. I'm. I think I'm missing a page. Is it the Avignon Papacy? Yeah. Okay. So, the Avignon Papacy is basically the the Pope. The, the, the papacy starts weakening, essentially, and uh, the pope moves to France, and he lives in France for about 70 years, and there's several popes that live there. And then after that, you have this papal schism, and, uh, and they move back to Rome, and these French cardinals elect, uh, elect a pope, um, but then they immediately regret their decision, and they move back to Avignon, and uh, they elect another pope. And so you actually have two popes at, uh, because the, the, the first one that they elected doesn't give up his power. And uh, so you have these competing popes for quite a while. And then uh, the cardinals of both of these, uh, the, 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 of these popes in Rome and uh, Avignon, they get together and they're like, all right, we got to fix this. We need to just get one pope. And they get together and they elect another pope, uh, to resolve the issue, um, but these two popes then don't give up their power either. So then you have three popes, and, and uh, yeah, that's I guess that's a that's a huge basic uh, overview. But I wanted to talk about um, I guess prior to the Avignon Papacy, you have Pope Boniface the Eighth in the year thirteen hundred, and he is um, he is this incredibly extravagant and I guess you could say power-hungry and politically ambitious um, pope. And I believe he comes, there's a, there's a pope right before him, and I cannot remember his name, but he ruled for six months. Oh, man, I wish I could remember this guy's name. But he ruled for six months, and, uh, and he, he just resigned. 
because he he basically and he and he resigned by saying these words. He says, uh, "You cannot be both good and pope." <laughs> and this guy was concerned, genuinely concerned with personal piety. But I also think it's a, a lesson of uh, if good men won't rule, then bad men will. Because the guy who takes his place is Pope Boniface the Eighth, and this guy is unhinged. <laughs> he in the year thirteen hundred. He proclaims a year of jubilee and complete forgiveness of sins for any pilgrims to uh, the holy city of Rome. And pilgrims began to, to pour in. He, uh, he gives the gift of a plenary uh, indulgence. And a plenary indulgence means a complete uh, forgiveness of sins as, to, as opposed to a partial indulgence. And uh, actually, Pope uh, Paul the six did a similar thing in 1975. So these kind of medieval practices, uh, they're not gone. The, the, the Roman Catholic Church still preaches and teaches these kinds of things, um, this kind of wheeling and dealing in salvation. <laughs> and um, so uh, he, he, does, he proclaims this, and he would appear to pilgrims, and he had on his papal crown, it was reported that he had 48 rubies, 72 sapphires, 45 emeralds, and 66 large pearls. And he would appear before them and he would say, I am emperor, I am Caesar. <laughs> and really that, if we, just to boil it down, that is really the tension that's going on in the Middle Ages for, I would argue, about a thousand years. The, the Pope is... is struggling with this idea of him being the emperor and him being the leader of the church. And it is just this huge power trip, probably the biggest power trip you could ever, anybody could ever have to struggle with. Um, and so, and, the, and, and so anyway, um, Boniface, uh, he has these extravagant theatrics and it's only matched by his political theatrics, his political involvement He's basically always in a fight with the king of France and the king of England, uh, well, or the king of Germany at least. And um, he, he gets in this huge tussle with uh, Philip the Fair, who was the, Fre the French king at the time, and it's essentially over taxation, which uh, um, the, basically Philip, I believe, he starts taxing clergy and prior to that, the clergy were not allowed to be taxed, at least without permission, uh, uh, with the papacy. But he started doing it anyway. Um, and so that becomes a huge, that's one example of the many disputes that, that Boniface has with these men. And in some cases, the clergy would side with the emperor. And it's reported that one clergyman, one bishop, I believe he said, um, and this kind of shows that even though the pope is is gaining hubris and 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 kind of on this power trip it's actually kind of weakening because I, I believe one of the po uh, bishops at the time said um, uh, the the king of France uh, or, or the the or the Pope uh, can threaten me with words but the king can threaten me with a sword <laughs> and so so you see this kind of, there's it, there's this um, and at this time it's also kind of the formation of nations as we know it now the medieval world begins to think the late medieval world begins to think of itself less in terms of the christian empire 
in Christendom, but more in terms of Frenchmen and Englishmen and Germans. And you start to see that kind of uh, a little bit. And so anyway, you have this scuffle between Boniface and uh, uh, the the king of France, and he issues the Unum Sanctum. And the Unum Sanctum is one of the most famous declarations of, of the Pope. And he basically, Unum Sanctum means holy one in Latin. And uh, he essentially, the Pope declares that he is head of spiritual affairs in the church. And that spiritual affairs are more important than uh, civil affairs. And so if that's the case, then he's also the head of civil affairs. And you have to submit to his authority, not only in the ecclesiastical realm, but you have to submit to his authority in the civil realm as well. And so um, this becomes, uh, this becomes a, a, a pretty big uh, uh, declaration by the Pope throughout, throughout history. Um, and then after that, you have the Avignon Papacy and the Papal Schism which lasts all the way up to 1417. It's uh, only resolved by, um, I can't remember, the Council of Constance, which is not an ecclesiastical council. You basically, it's basically a council convened by civil magistrates and you have representatives up from, from nations come there to elect a new pope. And, uh, and they do, they elect Martin V as a new pope and uh, and so about 100 years prior to the Reformation, you finally get this papal schism worked out. And um, and then after Martin V is elected as the pope, he um, he ba- they, they make some other pronouncements, which basically say that um, that councils convened together uh, are able to have more authority than the pope. And this idea is called conciliarism. And this is also another issue throughout this time is authority. Who, who has the most authority in, in these church matters? And they declare that councils have more authorities than popes do. So they, not, they elect Martin to be the pope. And as he's the pope, he basically says, everything that this council decided is wrong, except for electing me as a pope. And he basically tries to marshal the power back to the papacy, saying, no, councils do not have more authority than popes do. So you see a little bit of this this uh, pushback against the against papal authority even in the Middle Ages. There's a, there's a lot of difficulty. Oh, and with Boniface the Eighth, um, Dante places Boniface the Eighth, the one who said, "I am emperor, I am Caesar." Uh, Dante in his Inferno, one of the greatest works in the medieval realm, uh, in the midi- medieval age. He places Boniface VIII in the ninth circle of hell, <laughs> which is with the Simoniacs, which is those who are guilty of simony for purchasing, uh, purchasing uh, ecclesiastical offices with money, which is goes back to Simon the magician who wanted to purchase the Holy Spirit. So anyway, um, and I think in in Dante, I believe was excommunicated from his home, which I can't remember. I can't remember what city it is um, in Italy. But they actually, that that city, maybe it's Florence, I'm not sure. Um, but uh, that city just lifted his excommunication like in 2004 or something like that. So Dante's welcome back to his, his hometown. All right. Um, all right. Uh, Joan of Arc and the Hundred Years' War. I just wanted to mention real quick. 
basically in the Hundred Years' War, you have England and France duking it out over, over land, and um, uh, you have you have England the you have the English owning a lot of land in France, amassing a lot of land. Then they start to lose it, and then the King of France wants to take the last bit of land that they have. I believe it's Aquitaine, and that's in southwest France, and that launches this Hundred Years' War, which is actually longer than than a Hundred Years' War. Um, and the English just start mopping the floor with the French. They're they're getting military victory after military victory, and. Uh, what happens is you have this girl named Joan of Arc who starts to hear these voices when she's very young. And um, she, maybe like 16 or so, she believes that these voices are voices of angels, voices of God, they're heavenly voices. And uh, she, she believes that they're telling her that she needs to lead the armies of France. And so she goes to a guy who is is close to the king of France, and she says, I'm hearing from God, and I think I need to lead the armies. <laughs> and, the, and the French are so desperate at the time, they're just, they're losing all the time. They're just like, well, let's give it a shot. And they give her kind of this figurehead position, and she says, we need to attack, we need to take back Rance, and uh, I can't remember the other, I can't remember the other city. Orleans. Oh, Orleans, yeah, right, that's right. Uh, and because these cities had historical prominence in Rance, you had, uh, this is where the king, the emperor was, uh, coronated usually. And so she's like, these are strategic places we need to take back. And, um, so they give her this figurehead position. They let the, they let, they, they have the military generals kind of keep, keep an eye on her, but she's essentially kind of leading the armies and they win <laughs> and they start winning more and more and more, so much so that they drive the English out of France. And so Joan of Arc is incredibly popular, even with the, the men, the military men. Um, and uh, she eventually gets kidnapped um, after basically they have driven the English out. She gets kidnapped by uh, the Burgundians, I believe, which are this Germanic tribe, tribal people. They kidnap her and they hold her for a ransom. They go to the king of France and say, hey, uh, we'll give you back Joan if, uh, if you give us some money. And the king of France knows that Joan is basically, he's, he's glad she helped him out, but he knows that she's a political threat. And so he's like, nope, not going to pay for her. <laughs> and so then they go to the English and... They say, hey, we got Joan of Arc. Would you like to pay to have her? And the English are like, yep, we will, we will pay for her. And they, uh, they take her and they burn her at the stake uh, for being a witch. <laughs> they say, you weren't hearing from God. You were hearing from demons. And they burn her at the stake. And so, uh, so that's kind of the story of Joan of Arc as I, under, as I understand it. Um, all right. I know we're moving really quick here. Um, we just got, a, I guess, a few more things. Um, but one of, the, uh, one of the major, I guess you could say, it, the school of thought that arose in the Middle Ages was scholasticism. And if I had to boil it down, it's, a, it's kind of hard to get my head wrapped around it. 
but if I had to boil it down, it would be um, a, it's more of a method of, of incorporating reason and rationality and precision and, or, and organizing thought to the teachings of the church. That is scholasticism. Not to, it's, not, it's not to be confused with just being, just being an academic. It's, it's a particular method of thought. And uh, it, it looks to a lot of the authorities in the early church, Augustine, Gregory the Great, things like this. But it also reveres the writings of pagan authors like Aristotle, particularly Aristotle, because Aristotle uh, had a system of logic and epistemology that, they, that is, is uh, correct for, for, what, for how they viewed the world. Um, and so they incorporated that in, in the Middle Ages you have um, you have kind of uh, you have rationalists on one side who want to really give reason a high position in how to understand the things of God, and then you have what are called obscuritists on the other side, which do not hold reason as as in high regard. It's more like our wills are corrupted and our wills need to be corrected, and then we'll be able to understand uh, uh, the church's teachings. And one of the earlier, uh, sometimes called the father of scholasticism, though that's not really the best term, but Anselm was uh, one of the, he's a, he's a pretty major, uh, I guess you could say, theologian or philosopher, who he wrote uh, a couple of big works, the Monologian, the Proslogian, and uh, Curdeus Homo, Why the God-Man. And in, in that, he basically, using kind of... Uh, discarding divine revelation and just using ra reason and rationality, he basically tries to defend or explain why did God have to become a man to save us? And he explores these ideas with just using reason. And um, I guess just as an anecdote, um, I, I I had to read the Monologian in seminary, and I came across this passage, which I put at the preface of uh, my the first time I ever put pen to paper regarding the divorce remarriage issue, um, and uh, so I'll just I'll read I'll read this real quick, and this is this is what um, this is what Anselm says at the beginning of his Monologian. He says, certain brothers have frequently and earnestly entreated me to write out for them in the form of a meditation certain things which I had discussed in non-technical terms with them regarding meditation on the divine being and regarding certain other themes related to a meditation of this kind. For a long time, I was reluctant to attempt this and comparing myself with the task, I tried on many grounds to make excuses for myself for the more readily they wished that what they were seeking should be of practical use to them, the more difficult they were making it for me to accomplish what they sought. But at last, overcome by the modest insistence of their entreaties, as well as by the commendable probity of their uh, earnestness, I began to undertake what they were entreating, even though I was still reluctant because of the difficulty of the task and the weakness of my intellectual power. But because of their love, I gladly and to the best of my ability, finished it in accordance with their prescription. 
I was induced to this undertaking by the expectation that whatever I did would be known only to those who made the request of me, and that after a while they would overwhelm it with contempt, scorning it as a thing of little value. For in this understanding, I know I was not so much able to satisfy those who were entreating me as I was able to put an end to the entreaties that they were pursuing me. So <laughs> it's kind of a, a wordy, a wordy explanation, but he basically is saying, my friends wanted me to write this stuff down to explain it to them. And I was reluctant to do it. And I did it knowing that they would basically just, just have nothing but contempt for it. But at least I accomplished uh, the task of preventing them from asking me to write it down anymore, <laughs> which is exactly what happened. I had all the I had nobody ever brought up that that issue or anything I wrote. They never engaged me on it after that. They were just like, "Why don't you write it down? Write it down." It's like, okay, I wrote it down. You want to talk about it? No. <laughs> all right, <laughs> that's fine. Okay, um, and. Also something to note here in the Middle Ages uh, was the, it's the rise of the university. And it's pretty amazing to think that basically these huge universities, all of them basically formed from the magnetism of single teachers. You had teachers who were engaging in thinking about God and thinking about the, the, the teachings of the church and students were attracted to them. They would flock to them and they would have debates. They would have um, lectures. And in, in Oxford and Cambridge, one of the greatest universities in the world now, they were meeting in like sheds and barns, like on the side of the street. And they would pick up and move if they had to. And um, it's just amazing to me to think about this is how they started, you know, don't despise the day of small beginnings kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, so, uh, this is also the beginning of kind of the liberal arts, and that was adopted from Romans. You had this uh, Roman Christian, uh, Cassidorius, who wrote uh, the Handbook of the Sacred and Secular Learning, um, where he defines the liberal arts, which is basically divided up into the trivium and the quadrivium, trivium being uh, logic, grammar, and rhetoric. And then the quadrivium is... Um, uh, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. And, um, and so you have kind of the incorporation of these classical, uh, these classical categories of learning and even methods of learning um, with Christianity. And, um, and the universities grow out of, out of this, uh, from this time period on. Um, And I'll only say you have guys like Peter Abelard, who he, uh, he famously wrote a book called uh, Seek et Non, which is Latin for yes and no, where he basically asks certain questions. And then he puts quotations from the Bible, from the early church fathers, and from classical literature that are all contradictory answers to these questions. And, and, and it basically, it's just an exercise of trying to reconcile these things, trying to engage in a dialectic with it. And um, he famously said, he said the, uh, the first, maybe not famously, but he says the first key to wisdom is assiduous and frequent questioning. For by doubting we come to inquiry and by inquiry we arrive at truth. Now, some people uh, applauded this kind of skepticism 
uh, and other people booed. Another famous uh, clergyman at the time was Bernard of Clairvaux, um, and he told he he basically confronts Abelard and he says the faith of the righteous believes it does not dispute. <laughs> so these are kind of the tensions that you have going on in the Middle Ages, which is interesting because we think that these things are we think that these things are modern problems, but they're not really. Although Abelard is not a modern man. He's not a man who disregards the supernatural or the authority of scripture, the authority of tradition and the teachings of the church and only sticks to reason and rationality. He's a man who believes that these things are real, but he also gives reason uh, a, a certain kind of primacy. And so you start having uh, more and more, um, I guess, uh, uh, let's see here. Yeah, uh, I guess writings from the classical world pour into, pour into Europe at the time, particularly Aristotle. Uh, writings from non-Christians like uh, Muslim philosopher Averroes, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and um, Jewish philosopher Maimonides, which sometimes Ben Shapiro will even quote Maimonides. Well, Maimonides says, you know, and uh, so these guys are coming in and there's challenges to Christianity and people are really liking the Greeks and Aristotle. And I would say, out of that, the main voice that is able to answer these challenges, that is able to synthesize this idea of reason, rationality, and faith in the authority of, of the church is Thomas Aquinas. And Aquinas, along with Augustine, probably the most, the biggest towering figures in the Western world. And um, uh, Aquinas's uh, magnum opus is, is the Summa Theologica, and he, he is just very precise and able to um, sympath, uh, synthesize and go through these things and pick apart the things that Aristotle and Maimonides and these guys are saying that are true, affirming those, maybe synthesizing things that they are saying with Christian doctrine and then rejecting other things that are not. And... Um, he wrote the Summa as just a kind of introduction for people who wanted to be pastors. And it's basically kind of the greatest work within the Roman Catholic Church and one of the greatest works within Western Christianity. But um, Thomas is just a little bit of background on Thomas. He, uh, he was born to a family of kind of low nobility. His uncle was an abbot of a Benedictine monastery, which... The, ben the Benedictines had been around for quite a while since the early Middle Ages, late antiquity. Um, but the, Benedic the Benedictine order had kind of become, uh, they've they amassed wealth and power and it became kind of a more aristocratic type thing. And um, at this time you have other uh, orders being formed uh, like the Dominican order and the Franciscan order. And these orders are uh, dedicated to poverty. They're mendicant orders, meaning begging. They have to beg for food. And um, they're also, particularly the Dominicans, are preachers and defenders of the faith. They're, they specialize in kind of putting down heresy. And um, even if you see somebody today with OP behind their name, it means that they're, they're a Dominican monk. And the OP stands for Ordo Predicatorium or something like that, which means or, the order of preachers. And so this is also another thing that we see in the Middle Ages of uh, it's a, a kind of um, 
almost a reformation before the reformation. You see these monasteries becoming corrupt, and so new monastic orders forming out of that, pushing against the, the, the amassed wealth of the church and saying, well, Jesus says to be perfect, we have to sell all of our stuff, and uh, we need to live basically barefoot and hungry like Jesus and the apostles did, or at least how they conceived that they lived. And so um, Thomas is more interested in joining the Dominicans, this, this, this order that's dedicated to poverty. Um, and they're also dedicated to being intellectually elite as well, being the intellectual kings of their communities, essentially. Um, and his family doesn't want this. And basically his father has, he's on his way to Rome to go basically become a, a, a Dominican. His, his father has his brothers lock Thomas up in a tower in Aquino, which is where, where he's from, where his name comes from. It's not his last name. They lock him in a tower because they don't want him to do this. And they basically try to shake his resolve by getting him to sin. They try to get him drunk and he refuses. They try to even bring in prostitutes get him to sleep with prostitutes and he takes the he takes the iron poker from the fire and he he drives out the hookers and he carves a cross on the door to keep him away <laughs> reportedly that's what he did but he but he he with he withstood the the uh temptations that his family were trying to they weren't trying to make him a non-christian but they were trying to Keep him from becoming too Christian, I guess you could say. <laughs> they had they had different plans for him, and uh, and they didn't like what he was doing. I think we can kind of uh, digging dig a pit for him. Digging a pit for him, right? Exactly. Hmm. And uh, so Thomas he he eventually winds up going to the University of Paris. He studies under a man named Albert the Great, and um, who who was a great man himself and. I kind of view him a little bit as a John the Baptist because he really facilitated and helped Thomas along. And it's, it's reported that um, Thomas was a, was a bigger guy and he was quiet. And so his nickname was the Big Ox and, um, uh, and maybe even the Big Dumb Ox. And dumb, not necessarily mean stupid, but he just didn't talk much. And um, it's, I think Chesterton says that Albert the Great, his teacher at the University of Paris, said, this is Thomas. We call him the Big Ox. But, but one day, or the, the big dumb ox, but one day this ox will let out a roar that will shake uh, Christendom forever. And he did. And that came out in, he's, uh, he, he wrote, uh, he dies at 49, but before he died, he wrote two works on Boethius, multiple polemic works, eight philosophy books, nine exegetical works, 11 expositions of Aristotle, 85 sermons, 400 pages in the Summa Contra Gentiles and, uh, Gentiles and 3,500 pages in the Summa Theologica. So incredibly prolific writer and very, uh, e even, even Protestants, um, particularly a few, uh, like a couple hundred years after the Reformation, you have a time called Reformed Orthodoxy or Protestant scholasticism where Basically, you have a return to the methods of Thomas in a lot of ways um, because his, his ability to organize and his ability to think about scripture and reality is just right in a lot of ways. And, um, and so the Protestant world has a heritage with Thomas as well. Um, but before he died, he... Uh, 
he um, reportedly saw a vision into heaven. And um, he told his, the guy who wrote for him, I guess, I don't know what you would call that, uh, some, a transcriptionist or I'm not quite sure, but he said, um, all that work, he said, everything I have written is a pile of straw compared to the things I've seen. <laughs> and then he died shortly. He didn't finish the, he didn't finish the Summa. He died actually before finishing it. But as one of my, one of my old friends who I'm not friends with anymore, but who I still love very dearly, uh, as he once said, uh, it may be a pile of straw, but it is an admirable pile of straw. <laughs> and it is. It's, it's, to this day, it's one of the greatest works in, in the West. And uh, I mean, um, I'm, we got we to gotta get moving, so I'm not going to talk about a lot of it. But, but Thomas is able to kind of talk about faith and reason and how, how non-regenerate man can have virtues and how what grace does when it regenerates a man and the different kinds of virtues that happen there. And basically, if we boiled it all down, I think a good description of this that I heard from Ryan Reeves was uh, that grace perfects nature. That grace is powerful, but it doesn't obliterate nature. And that nature is insufficient, but it's not, um, it's not totally worthless. So that by nature, we do know things about God. By nature, we do know what is good. But what grace does is it, it tells us that God not only exists, that there has to be some kind of first cause to the universe, but that God is Trinity and that God sent his son as an atonement for our sins. These are things that we can't know by nature, but we can know by grace. And um, these kinds of debates really kind of come all the way down to today. Um, even with, uh, uh, I know you, you just listened to the, the Bonson-Stein debate, that method of apologetics, which I think is awesome, brings out a lot of these issues. How much can man know about God uh, apart from actually being regenerated by him? And uh, um, so anyway, uh, those are some of the things with Thomas. Um, a lot of the, like the PRC, we're, we're familiar with the PRC a little bit. Like Thomas would say that, um, that the image of God was marred in the fall, but we still retained it a little bit. Um, and like the PRC would say, we lost the image of God in the fall. And they, the PRC would say uh, basically everything the opposite of Thomas. And so I think... I think us here are actually more aligned with Thomas in a lot of these things because I think it's just biblical. But uh, anyway, so those, these are some of the things uh, that uh, Thomas is known for. Um, uh, I'll say one more thing. Um, he, well, two more things. He's unfairly um, criticized as elevating reason too much in saying that reason doesn't, didn't affect the mind, which is called the noetic effects of sin. Um, but, but Thomas does believe that, that sin and the fall did affect the entire, entire human nature, um, which, is basically just a, which is basically the reform position of, of total depravity in a lot of ways. Um, and then Aquinas on transubstantiation, he, he is the reason why, how, why Catholics believe that they, 
the body and blood has always been, or the, the bread and wine has always been believed to have some kind of real presence of Christ in it. But what Thomas did is he took Aristotelian categories and he explained how the body and blood were present in the bread and wine, where the bread has these accidents, uh, which is the outward appearance of bread, but the substance is actually the body. And the same thing with the wine. These are Aristotelian categories of trying to explain uh, reality as we see it. And so um, I think, the, the, for example, the East just says it's a mystery. It's been revealed to us that Christ is present in some sense, but we don't necessarily know how it works. And that's our position uh, that we, you know, we think that there is something going on here, but we don't necessarily know exactly what it is. Or we're not going to attempt to define it in the same way that Thomas does. Um, all right, so real quickly, uh, we're coming to the end here, but um, I'll skip over the monasticism part, but I just wanted to reiterate that the monastic movements of the Franciscans and the Dominicans, I would say, were this kind of reform. And also in the Middle Ages, this the I believe that the spirit was present in these groups who really dedicated themselves to a life of poverty. They saw the church amassing so much wealth and the clergy being so immoral. And it was, they, and then they looked, they read the Bible and Jesus and the apostles didn't even seem to, they just kind of, they seemed to be kind of uh, living a life of poverty. And so they're like, well, we want to be like the apostles. We want to be like Jesus. So this is the middle ages. And you see this kind of return to the Bible movement in some sense. I just wanted to read um, a bishop in England. Uh, this is at the end of the 13th or the middle of the 13th century. Robert uh, Grossetest, I'm not quite sure how that's pronounced, of Lincoln, England. He says this. Uh, he says this of the pastors at the time. He says, As the life of pastors is the book of the laity, it is manifest that such as these are preachers of all errors and wickedness. And so he's saying that, that the laity who can't read, they can read how you live your life. And he's saying that pastors now are teaching wickedness and error by the way that they live their life. Hmm. Um, you have the... Uh, Another thing about the, about the monastics, really quick, is uh, you have the Albigenses or the Cathari, which is a heretical movement uh, in southern France, which basically just views matter as bad and the God of the Old Testament as different than the God of the New Testament. And you got to escape the flesh and avoid marriage and sexual intercourse. It's just the old Gnostic heresies in a lot of ways. It's this dualistic view of viewing the world. And... Um, uh, the, the church is like, how do we deal with these heretics? And the first thing they do is they send preachers to them. And the preachers that they sent were the Dominicans. That was one of the reasons they were so good with preaching is they were, they were trained to put down these heresies. Well, that didn't really work so well. So then they send crusades and they had Northern Frenchmen come down and demolish these heretics in Southern France, which I don't know how much of this is true, but I, I've heard estimates uh, anywhere between 200,000 and a million people were killed in these crusades, which is an astounding amount of uh, people. And, and they, there, was still, there were still some of these Cathari's around. 
And that is where the Inquisition comes in. And the Inquisition was this, uh, you attempt to stamp out these heretics through torture and getting them to confess and killing them sometimes or relinquish their heresy. And the Inquisition is another thing that people will bring up. You know, what about the Crusades? What about the Inquisition? So, yeah, not the, not the greatest moment for the church. But the Dominicans were also brought in to help with the Inquisition as far as questioning and stuff. I don't know how much they were involved. But sometimes I think they, I think they were even they were the torchbearers that would set them on fire sometimes, I think. Uh, I'm not totally sure on that. But anyway, the monastic movement. Um, but here's, here's something interesting, though. It's an incredible amount of bloodshed, but we didn't have the problem of that heresy until the 18th century. So even though it's horrific, I, I'm not going to make an apology for it. I'm not going to defend it, but it worked. So there's, it, we didn't, it, that kind of heresy didn't come back until uh, Mary Baker Eddy in the 19th century with the Christian science movement. And so, I mean, the late 19th century has a ton of kind of heresies that start prop coming up jehovah's witnesses mormons uh all that stuff all right wrapping it up here two more guys uh and these guys are often called proto-reformers uh john wycliffe and um john hoos or jan hoos john wycliffe is uh he is a, a clergyman in uh, england um no 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 i'm sorry he's a professor at oxford and um, he, a lot of the things, he was still Catholic in some ways. He still held some Catholic beliefs, but he started getting rid of a lot of them and writing against particularly the papacy. Um, and this is like, for example, this is one of the things he says about the papacy. Christ is truth. The Pope is the principle of falsehood. Christ lived in poverty. The Pope labors for worldly magnificence. Christ refused temporal dominion. The Pope seeks it. Um, he's also kind of, uh, he's, he, he brings out the idea of, uh, that the ancients had of kind of this threefold view of the church. We have the church triumphant in heaven or at the end of history. Um, and then you have the church militant, which is the church on earth, the visible church. And then you have uh, the church who are asleep. Uh, which may be the people in uh, uh, purgatory. Um, and so it's something of this invisible church idea that the church is not confined just to the visible baptized laity and, and clergy, ordained clergy. And so this, this is a pretty Protestant idea that he starts pushing. So he starts challenging a lot of uh, Roman ideas. He also leads a handful of scholars to translate the Bible from Latin to English. Um, so you, so this kind of return to the vernacular and he's very interested in preaching to the laity and bringing the laity into a more biblical way of viewing, uh, viewing things. Um, I'm just going to read this real quick. Yeah, this gives a this gives yeah this gives a good uh, summary of what he was doing. Uh, he says Wycliffe challenged the whole range of medieval beliefs and practices, 
uh, pardons, indulgences, absolutions, pilgrimages, the worship of images, the adoration of the saints, the treasury of their merits laid up at the reserve of the Pope, and the distinction between venial and mortal sins. Uh, he retained belief in purgatory, although I read somewhere else that he actually didn't believe in purgatory. But he also believed in extreme unction, uh, though he admitted that he looked in vain in the Bible for the institution of extreme unction. Images, he said, if they increase devotion, need not be removed, and prayers to saints were not necessarily wrong. Uh, confession he held to be useful, provided it was voluntary and made to a suitable purpose. Um, yeah. Compulsory confession he considered the bondage of Antichrist. We can catch the spirit of, yeah. Right, right. We can catch the spirit of his revolt in his declaration that preaching, yeah, he, this, is, this is a very proto-Protestant proto, uh, movement. He says, preaching is of more value than the administration of any sacrament. And the, the Protestant world, even in the structure of the church, you have the, the pulpit is usually elevated above the table. And because that the, it's a statement saying the word is more powerful than the sacraments. And in a lot of high church and a lot of high churches, their sacramentology is, no, this is how we gain eternal life by partaking of the sacraments. And that's why their preaching is only about 15 minutes. The homilies are about 15 minutes because the sacraments are what's important. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, we try to hold both of those things together. Um, we believe that we believe the sacraments are important. We believe the preaching of the word are important. Both of them have a transformative uh, uh, impact on the life of the Christian. But anyway, these are the things that Wycliffe is is pushing against. Um, and out of out of Wycliffe's endeavors to reach the laity, you have what's called the Lollardy movement. And um, nobody really knows what the term Lollardy means or where that came about, but it possibly is somewhat connected with mumbling and it could be something along the lines of uh like la 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 where um he's trying to bring these the laity who are kind of illiterate he's trying to bring them along and it's possible that critics who were literate and educated would make fun of these people when they're trying to read the bible and they, they may not really know how to read very well, so they're just kind of mumbling along and la, 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 la. That could be where it comes from. But um, it's not, uh, well, there's a lot of debate over how successful it was in England. But Wycliffe's, Wycliffe's writings are then um, uh, read in Bohemia, or what's now the Czech Republic, um, by John Hus, who's a rector at uh, Bethlehem Chapel in Prague. And he really likes what he is reading. And even in the, I don't know if it's in the chapel or the university, but he's close to a university. And even in that, even in one of those institutions, there's paintings. They begin to start doing, he starts spreading Wycliffe's work and his ideas against the papacy and things like this. And um, there's paintings of, uh, the Pope doing something and then Jesus doing something and contrasting the, the differences in their lives. And so you, you see this in, uh, in John Hus's movement and he gets excommunicated, I think, twice for kind of doing this. And you have the, the Hussite movement uh, uh, gaining more steam. It's much more, much more popular in Bohemia in these areas than it was in England. And... Uh, 
he is imprisoned for a while. He's prisoned for eight months, and um, and he's he's there's false charges brought against him, and and all of these things. And um, his letters, especially in the last months of his uh, life, because he is eventually killed. They they when I read them, they reminded me of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and um, this is uh, this is what he said. Uh, oh, I guess I okay. I guess I, I thought I was I thought I, I thought I had quotes from from these letters, but I don't. But they reminded me of that kind of like having to drink this cup of sacrifice. He knew what was coming. But before he was, he was burned at the stake. Oh, and also, by the way, the Council of Constance, the one that was able to get the, 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 the papal schism figured out, they declared, I believe they declared Wycliffe a heretic after his death, posthumously. And they um, exhumed his bones and they burned them and they, dust the, and they dumped the ashes in a river. Um, but they burn Hus at the, uh, at the stake and, um, they ask him one last time if he'll recant of his, of his, uh, teachings, his position. And he says, God is my witness that the evidence against me is false. I have never thought nor preached except with one intention of winning men, if possible, from their sins. And the truth of the gospel I have written, taught, and preached. Today I will gladly die. <laughs> And it's also reported uh, in, I think, Fox's books of, Book of Martyrs. I don't know if he actually said this. Um, one of those kind of obscure quotes from history. But he said his name, Hoos, means goose, uh, which comes from where he lives, possibly some kind of goose farmer or something. But he's reported to have said, Today you burn a goose, but in 100 years a swan will arise, which you will prove unable to boil or roast. And a hundred years later, that's when Martin Luther hmm. came on the scene. And I don't know if it's Fox who attributes it to Luther or if Luther self-consciously views himself as the fulfillment of that prophecy or if the whole thing is just a, a legend that actually didn't happen. But either way, that's interesting. Hmm. Um, so... I'll close with this um, this observation from Bruce Shelley, who I got a lot of these things from, and also just when I'm now that I'm remembering it, it's uh, we went through a lot of things today here. Very uh, very brief um, overview of a lot of different topics, and I'm not a historian, and I welcome um, I welcome correction and engagement from people who are uh, watching. Um, but uh, I wanted to end with this. Bruce Shelley, he says this about the 14th century specifically, but I think it's good to think about um, just the whole end of the Middle Ages in this way. He says, Significant changes often take place in the church and in the world, and men are totally unaware of what is happening. The papacy in particular continued its business-as-usual attitude well, important ideas and social forces change the face of Christianity. And I, that to me was really comforting to read because I think uh, there's a certain frustration that I have, I guess, uh, because I think, um, I think that there are a lot of forces at work 
driven by the Holy Spirit that are changing the church and changing the world now. And the church is essentially just conducting business as usual. Um, but it's not going to be like that forever. <laughs> They're not going to be able to continue doing that forever. And these things can take a long time. But I think we can find comfort in the fact that in this time, the Pope was growing, the established church was growing in its kind of hubris and arrogance and trying to claim more power to itself. But at the same time, it was rusting out from underneath mm -hmm. and it was, it, was, it was corroding away. And then you have this, this unlikely, uh, well, maybe not unlikely, but this, you know, intense monk from Germany start really challenging him. But the amazing thing is, is you have challenges to the Pope and his authority. Oh, I forgot to say this. Pope Boniface VIII, the Unum Sanctum guy, he actually, he gets captured by the French armies and he's imprisoned for a while. And he's most likely tortured and beat up and they finally release him and he dies a few days later. And so that's another thing that kind of shows that the the papacy and its honor was weakening during this time. Mm. But I, I, that kind of, yeah, business as usual attitude is quite um, frustrating to watch at times. Seeing the church continually attack abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism. It's like, guys, these things are a product. These things are a symptom of the divorce and remarriage in your own churches of the adultery of the heterosexual members of your own churches. And, uh, you know, people can mock us and make fun of us for making this, you know, for being, why are you stuck on this issue? But it's, uh, it's a huge issue that is, that is not only, it's, it's uh, perpetuated in the church. And so we'll, uh, given enough time, we'll, we'll start seeing it being addressed in significant ways and I think in powerful ways. And so... I think it's helpful to watch something like the end of the Middle Ages, the preliminaries to the Reformation, where you see these startups of reform a little bit, but it doesn't happen. It was several hundred years before it finally, for whatever reason, it, 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 it snagged with Luther and then it, it changed Christendom forever. And what's the difference? I, it's the Holy Spirit, I think. The Holy Spirit just really moved in a powerful way at that time. And, and the world wasn't ready for that kind of reformation uh, until the reformation. <laughs> so all things in, in, in God has made all things beautiful in its time, right? From Ecclesiastes. And that was uh, mom's word for, for me. I think she etched that in the back of a watch she gave. And that's true. I mean, that's, that's very true. So, um, so the reformation is considered the end of the Middle Ages? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, Reformation is the early modern era. Yeah. Yep. All right. Let's uh, praise God. Let's sing Psalm 149.